Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Well, hello, and welcome back to Godsplaining. I am Father Gregory Pine, and I am here with Father Bonaventure Chapman. Father Bonaventure, you are on the other side of the same building. Uh, but we are isolating ourselves from each other, not because of coronavirus, because um, for, I guess, technological reasons. It's hard to say, but how are you doing? I'm doing great. Although, yeah, it was, it'd be cool to be in like a studio with two boom mics or something. We could be next. At earlier stages of God's planning, I think we used to do that before we, we kind of got excited about having real production and good pictures. Uh, we used to like sit in a room, gather around together on an upside down trash can and uh, <laughs> and record things. And there was something beautiful about that, which I like, and I miss that. Although, um, you know, progress is hard to go back on. It's like yeah. you know, measles vaccines. It's hard to want those to go away. Yeah, it's like going from a smartphone to a dumb phone and then trying to navigate your way to a destination without an atlas. Um, yeah, we did just put things on upside-down trash cans. That was nice. It was basically like us shouting into a cardioid mic and then people sending us emails saying like, hey, great content. Unfortunately, I can only ever hear like, three out of five words per sentence. But apart from that, you know, great work, which is, uh, you know, suboptimal, but maybe that was the move. Maybe we should go back. It's hard to say. Maybe not. Well, regardless. Well, um, our viewers can uh, let us know. Each time you, when you send a comment, just send us $100 and uh, tell us what you <laughs> want us to do with it. <laughs> no, don't do that. Um, we're, we're, we're doing great. Everything's great. Um, especially the upside-down trash cans. They are the greatest. Um, yeah. So... In terms of meta discourse or meta narratival commentary on life and all of its funness, uh, we thought that for this year episode they would do something about postmodernism and literature. So we've been in the habit of just treating a variety of different authors. Most of them would be like 19th or 20th century greats, or greats in our estimation. Uh, but occasionally, you know, we dip into the contemporary, and this will be a dive into the contemporary. Uh, why? Because we love postmodern literature. Well details forthcoming, but because postmodernism is the current artistic, you know, atmosphere, context, ambient culture uh, in which people are trying to produce contemporary works of art. So, you know, things unfold in history and maybe history has something to say about who we are and how we live. Do I believe that? I think I do. Yeah, I think I do. Mm, um, so true. Father Bonaventure, I know nothing about postmodernism. I actually know nothing about most everything, um, but you do. Uh, or at least you can speak about it with a modicum of confidence. So well, where do people begin when trying to define postmodernism? I think, I mean, everyone kind of knows basic, but I want to start with, I mean, I guess we have to start with puppets, right? <laughs> so this is, uh, this is Friedrich Nietzsche, and this is Michel Foucault. And uh, these guys are two kind of, you could say, you know, the borders, the bookends, the puppet ends of uh, postmodernism. And uh, yeah, I thought, see, puppets, we've reached a new level. Um so it's hard to, it depends where you kind of go in postmodern, where you define this sort of thing. Sorry, I taught, I taught a course in Wisdom of Socrates, and, uh, and so I would do Kierkegaard, <laughs> Nietzsche, and Foucault, and uh, the college students, they just need a little help. So, uh, so puppets. And I thought that maybe for the final exam, the, the final exam could be I would, put, I would put these puppets. I had Plato, too. He's somewhere else. Um, and, uh, and, so and Socrates. I'd put them in a bowl. And you could pick them out of the bowl. Like, you'd pick one, I'd pick one. And the final exam would be oral puppet fight. So you'd have to be in persona Socrates versus in persona, like, Nietzsche. Uh, this, But I think people, I would, I would have probably just grabbed their hand from their hand and had my own discussion with them. And then would have got super postmodern. Because 
Postmodernity is a kind of, you could say, a turn from the vertical uh, to the horizontal, if you want to give it the most general thing. By the way, I'm going to just do some hand-waving here. So if you have done a PhD on, on Jacques Derrida or Michel Foucault or Jean-Francois Lyotard or anyone else in that kind of Richard Rohr, if you want to be American about this, um, then I'm going to say things that are howlers. So I apologize about that. But know that I know a little more than what I'm about to say, um, but not much. So, you know, <laughs> send information. But postmodern, so postmodernity could be seen as, as a, ref, uh, a shift from the vertical to the horizontal in that instead of grounding kind of foundational claims about what is true about the world in either above or below, you know, um, you grounded now in in the kind of discourse we have with each other, so it's kind of like we're playing. In ter- we're not like instead of you could say like latching an an anchor onto the bottom of the sea or latching like a clip to the top of a, a, a ceiling or something to give you a firm thing to hold on to. Postmodernity says that it's more like tug of war. That we when we progress in knowledge, we're not pulling ourselves up or like grounding ourselves to hold firm against a storm of uncertainty in either of those vertical dimensions, but rather we're, we're pulling back and forth with each other, and where we land is dependent upon who has the power, who has the, the strength, who has the most rhetoric, who has the, the current insight, this sort of thing. So it's a shift from the vertical to the horizontal. That's just a setup. Second thing is, really in the 70s, I guess, I mean, you, you want to keep saying who's the first postmodern, and you can read things like Plato or Augustine. I thought those are just so unhelpful. Uh, architecturally, it's said in the 1972 when a when a building collapses, um, but I forget what that building's called. There was a project building that was set up in the 50s, and it was like this was going to last forever. And then in the 70s, the whole thing collapsed, and uh, and that was like postmodernity entered. But most most people cited with um, Jean Francois Lyotard's postmodern condition, uh, a report on the condition of knowledge. So Quebec, get this, a government said, hey, we need a report on a condition of something. And, this, and Leotard said, what's that? Because you might think, like, I don't know, the environment, ec- economy, the health system, you know, the populace. And they're like, no, knowledge. Tell us what's going on with knowledge today. So he produces a, a book, which he actually hated, um, called The Postmodern Condition, where he kind of details what postmodernity is. And it gives a definition, which I'm sure people have heard. It says, this is actually in the 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 postlog of the book, not in itself, the book itself. But he says, simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta narratives, and that's incredulity towards meta narratives has kind of stuck. And that's again, think about the horizontal. So meta narratives are like the vertical, like we have a story that we're attached to, a foundation or some kind of thing that we all agree about and that we didn't come up with. We either stumbled upon it because of like a naturalism. Or it was given to us by revelation, so either b- below or above. Instead, no, there's no none of those. The only meta narratives we have are the ones that we project or we decide, and that's like the guy pulling the string with the hardest pull. Um, you're just used to pulling that direction. So that's a that's a start. I don't know if that helps to concept contextualize the movement. Yeah, I was. Let's see. How do I describe my role? I was helping with Chivitas Day, which is a conference that the Tomisic Institute runs in Washington, D.C., which I guess is different than Pro Chivitate Day, but that's another conversation. Um, and the presenters were Professor Tom Hibbs from Baylor, Professor Philip Best from Notre Dame, and then Father Reginald Lynch from our own Dominican House of Studies. And they were talking about art, meaning, in the public square, but Professor Best was talking about architectural movements in the last, whatever, 75 years, and he was basically saying that 
A lot of people think that modernism was a big deal, but he says, truth be told, modernism was just a transition period from kind of classical architecture to hypermodernism. Mm. And it's kind of hard to summarize insofar as the present condition is somewhat disparate in its aims. But it sounds like uh, it was kind of transgressive in its dispositions. It's like, all right, formally we said this, but like, what if we did something else? Uh, just kind of like see how it goes. And so he described these buildings that were built that were kind of gravity-defying, use-defying, material-defying. They just kind of went against the typical dictates of classical building. And, you know, you have these crazy-looking things that require, you know, millions of dollars worth of repairs within a couple of years. But people don't care too terribly much. They're like, ah, rats, repairs. You know, but it's like the thing is about transgression. And insofar as repairs are just part of transgression, they're like, hey, that works too, my friends. So it's fascinating yeah. because there's no, like, core as you said, there's no there's no moorings in the vertical order. It's just it's just push and pull, uh, which is fascinating. Yeah, super. Was fascinating. Tra- and, and transgression is a, a good term because they might even say, well, yeah, I mean, because the boundaries don't actually exist really. You don't trans- transgress against anything. So, for instance, like in music, uh, Schoenbrunn, you know, kind of whole t- whole tone things. So he's writing in Austria in the late twentieth century, mid mid to late twentieth century, and he's doing what's called a tonal kind of music. And what he's really doing though is He's saying, you know those chords we have, like da 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 da. He's saying there's no reason we have to fill that out. Like that's just for a long time people have been so switched instead of like that's how music works, some Platonistic, you know, chord progression of fifths and thirds. It's like no, but that's just been people have been pulling the wrong one direction on that thing for so long that we felt like of course the rope always goes that way. But it's just pulling. So he's not gonna he's not gonna finish those out. He's gonna just say no. I don't need. I'm gonna make music that sounds jarring to you, but that's only because you've been pulled in the other direction for a while. But there's no there's no mooring for that. Um, so that it becomes a kind of a hyper rationalism in the sense that your reason is not tethered to anything else. It's just basically what you can do with it. So people think the postmodernity is irrational, um, but it's really a hyper rationalism. In that way, it's an extension of rationalism qua rationalism, as opposed to rationalism uh, qua grounded uh, sufficient reason or something based on axioms. It just doesn't accept those because it doesn't have the moorings, which present, yeah. it, you know, produces some interesting things. So, so when you think about it in terms of unmoored reason, I've also heard it described as a kind of, not like despair, but a wholesale jettisoning of like natural law, as it were. Mm. Not in the sense that people are like, let's sin always and everywhere, because it's not really a moral evaluation so much as it is an aesthetic evaluation. When you think about the, um, the natural law, St. Thomas describes it as a series. Well, he, he describes it as a hierarchically articulated order of inclinations. Basically, because you are what you are, there's a kind of law impressed in your nature and your members. So you're inclined towards the good. So like whenever you choose something, you're like, ah, this seems right. Um, you're inclined towards the preservation of your existence. So when you look at I don't know, a 650-foot cliff, you know, in county, wherever that is, Clare. You're like, probably should stay on this side of it. Um, And you're inclined to the procreation and education of children, which is to say, yeah, family life, that's kind of coded genetically, or it's coded at the level of inclination, and blah, blah, blah. But in like St. Thomas talks about, at the height of our powers, we're inclined to know the truth about God and to live um, in communion with other human beings. But what you find in postmodernism is a calling into question of all of those, and um, even at the most basic level, like mm. that we are ordered towards the good. It's like, are we? Or is that something that we've just uh, kind of swallowed from more naive or kind of unnuanced generations previous to our own? Like, perhaps we should call that into question, too. And at a certain level, you're like, 
whoa, I feel like vertigo coming and uh, I don't actually well, know where I'm supposed to stand. Yeah, and a lot of it, I mean, part of it's contextually American-wise because it started to become really important during the, the Nixon, the Vietnam years where the government before in World War One, World War Two, had said, hey, we're going to go fight a war because it matters. Um, and people said, sure, I'll just sign up and die. Um, but then in Viet- <laughs> Vietnam, all of a sudden people started for the first time saying, well, other than Charles Lindbergh, um, I, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like the government says, Nixon says, I'll do this, and he says, I'm not a crook. And then it turns out, wait a minute, like we can't trust them. So it comes with a political kind of cultural thing as well that authority, that unmooring is happening, and legitimately so. I mean, we, need to, we don't have to debate the, the, the rightness or wrongness of Vietnam War there. But if you want to see that human nature thing, the Thomas thing collapse, you can go to YouTube and watch a video, a debate between Noam Chomsky, not known as a defender of Thomistic natural law, and Michel Foucault. Um, and it is a great debate on human nature because Chomsky is kind of batting around and Foucault just pushes on him and says, I don't believe there's a human nature. There's just power structures. And so there's a bourgeois nature and a proletariat nature. And if we didn't have these power structures, we wouldn't even talk about justice. And Chomsky is put against the wall such that he has to say something like, well, I really do think there's a human nature, but don't push me too hard because I don't know how to draw it out. But I really don't agree with this thing. And and Foucault just pushes him on it and gets him to commit to some kind of human nature thing because Foucault isn't interested in that because human nature is a construct that's set up through power relations because of history and genealogy and such. And he just thinks, yeah, that's you're, you're hyper-rationalist, Noam Chomsky. You should realize that I'm the position you need to be in. Yeah. And it's a great debate to see the two, the two axes, you know. Yeah, and that's super helpful, too, when you think about how stuff gets done in the 21st century. Like, based on your description there, there's no real interest in coming to a common understanding of what is, because there is no what is in Foucault's evaluation. So then, by what means do you kind of win? And for Foucault, it's like unmasking, you know, showing that what you thought was real is in fact not real, or it's masquerading as real, or like protest. Or we think about our own setting, like advocacy now is a big way of getting done what you want to get done. But advocacy will sometimes lay claim to, you know, we're doing this because it's right or we're doing this because it's just. But at root, a lot of advocacy is just like, I want you to do this because I want to do this. And whether or not I've actually thought about that long, hard, or well doesn't matter too, too much because it's just pushing and pulling, you know, when you get right down to it. If you scratch it on the surface, it's just pushing and pulling. Woo! All right. Um, all right. We're about halfway through. So how about we take a quick break and then when we come back. We'll do some application in literature because that is half of the title. So we should devote half of the episode to it. Be right back. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. And we're back. We are here talking about, gosh, man, I got to get my emphases down and my We are pauses. here ah, yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Hey, once you start despaired of meaning, then there's no real shape to a sentence. It's just a matter of, you know, guttural sounds strung together, pushing and pulling. Um, so we're talking about postmodernism and literature, uh, and we said 
postmodernism as, as a general movement, it's calling things into question because it's trying to unveil the fact of their being, what, poorly grounded or just pertaining to a, a long lost time, a nostalgic time maybe even, uh, that, that no longer obtains in the 21st century, given what we know about how human beings treat each other, given what we know about, you know, fill in the blanks. So thinking then in terms of literature, what are the typical things that we would associate with literature, and then how does postmodernism call those into question, or how do postmodern thinkers call those into question? So what do you think would be places where we'd start here? I think, I mean, obviously, if we'll go with Leotard's um, Incredulity to Metanarrative, then like overall narrative arcs, um, consistent narrative points of stories such that there are themes, you could say, or we should say um, uh, a, an overall theme point or teleology to a book um, is one is one thing. So I think that both Leotard and especially Foucault, Foucault is going to look at what he calls regional ontologies. So not looking for meta ontologies of like what is true, but in isolated packets, there are ontologies, ways of studying something and ways of understanding something. And so they're going to call into question um, a kind of narrative that everyone in a book or everyone in a story or everyone in a situation is going to agree to. So that's one, the first thing. The second thing, I suppose, is going to be the relation of of the text to other texts um, and to itself in postmodernity. So this is more in Jacques Derrida, and again, I'm just going to blow through some some Jacques Derrida 101, which is going to be hideous. Just like if most people, if someone does like Scotus 101 or Aquinas 101, who's not a Dominican, they're probably getting the same thing. Um, but <laughs> Derrida's thing is is look at the the detach the signified from the signifier. So signifier is the word, signified is what you're pointing to, it's a reference issue. And Derrida's one of Derrida's big parts is to is to detach these and realize that the signifiers are actually pointing to signifiers themselves, it's like turtles upon turtles and signifiers upon signifiers. When he calls this, when you detach this, you focus on the play of the signifiers. So you don't look at what the signified is, but you look at how someone is signifying something, and that's actually the target. So that you, instead of going outside, just make a point that we can all look at together by signifying you call this red and I call this rote, you know, different languages. Instead, we're focusing on the language we use and how we signify it and to what point we signify it and what we're trying to do with it. And we just forget about the objective reference. That's an epistemological thing. But in narrative, you can see it in terms of the text isn't grounding itself in a reality that it's kind of playing off of in a possible world or fantasy or adding dimensions or changing history. But it has its own kind of signification so that it's always referring to itself or to really obscure things. And it's asking you to go on a treasure hunt, for instance, because you want to find the signifiers that it's signifying, not the signify that might be in your life, for instance. So that's, a, that's I would say, those two, the kind of regional ontologies, you could say, and lack of meta-narrative, and then the continuous play of signifiers um, and intertextuality that matters. And that's going to take away the moral arc of stories because they're not really referring to moral realities or things that you're trying to be better about, you know, as you think of like a Jane Austen books or something. They're not trying to teach that. They're trying to be plays of signification. So maybe to kind of like bring it into layman's terms, when it comes to narrative continuity or a narrative arc, typically when we think about a story, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, Right. There's a rising action that mounts to a climax of some sort, and then a falling action, which you sometimes hear referred to by that French word, denouement, uh, which should conclude. Now, 
authors were, will differ as to how dramatic they make the rising action and how rapid is the falling action and whether or not they actually deal with tying things up in a bow, how much they care about that. Um, but with postmodernism, there's a sense of drift is your general impression. Like we're going to talk about Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow and we're going to talk about Dave Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest as test cases. But with Infinite Jest, eh, there's a kind of movement insofar as one thing happens after another. But you're not clear as to whether or not there's a progression, right? Is somebody growing? Is somebody diminishing? Kind of hard to say. And even by the time you come to the end, you really don't have... You don't have the conceptual framework with which to interpret. And then when it comes to like, you know, the latter point, when you think about um, signs and signified, uh, like a lot of postmodern literature, you get the impression that uh, it doesn't care so much whether or not you pick up on what it's laying down. Um, like, for instance, when T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland, the first edition didn't have uh, notes. The second edition did have notes. And then the second edition, because it was so obscure, became such a hot commodity because people were like, maybe there's something to it and I need to gain access. And what, you know, came to be revealed was that, you know, in a certain sense, there's something to it. But in a certain sense, it's about the signs, you know, it's not about the signified. And mind you, T.S. Eliot is kind of a weird example because T.S. Eliot kind of recovers from that and then invests more in terms of meaning and, you know, the things signified. But like... Ezra Pound's cantos. It's like, how many mm. languages mm. are there in these things? And he doesn't actually expect to communicate that to another human being because mm. no one's as erudite as he is. So in a certain sense, it's like it's about the art as signifier rather than about the reality conveyed, communicated, you know, imparting some kind of gaze on reality, which he as an artist has managed to capture and then transmit. So, yeah, fascinating. You. Yeah, I think it's it, it just to take off that at the second point, and we might go back to the first point with, with Gravity's Rainbow with Pinchon, but with Foster Wallace, I mean, in a sense, with you can get lost in the signifiers, in the words, um, which I enjoy. I do I actually enjoy this part of it. I'm not sure where I'm supposed to, but um, because Dave Foster Wallace will have, his footnotes will have footnotes, and he'll have, like, he'll be discussing things with himself and with you in the footnote, and you'll be, for, so his footnotes and his endnotes, for instance, like Infinite Jest has 140 pages of endnotes or something, um, and you need to read, they're, they're an integral part of the text, so it's like a subversive move that the end notes and footnotes are actually crucial to the text. And in some places, there's certain essays where the most important things he says are actually in the footnotes. They're the best parts of it, you could say. Um, it's a bit like if you don't read Thomas, if you just read Thomas Aquinas' Summa and you don't read the Respondios, you read the objections, you say, that's a good objection, that's a good objection. And then you read the Corpus, said Contra in the Corpus, and you go, oh, solved it. And you skip the Respondios, you miss some really important stuff. Uh, and same way with, with Foster Wallace, the the footnotes, the endnotes have these digressions in them that become the source of the major part of the text, and then they have their own little digressions, and you get lost in this spiraling experience, and then you put back the text, but you haven't been there in a while, and you're just, you're going through different levels of the text, and it's a little world, right? But it's a world of signifiers that are aiming at other signifiers, and you're you're just hunting them down and enjoying the process, but it's not getting you back to one narrative arc or two even kind of back to reality in a way. Although he has a twist to it, which we won't be able to nuance in this in this particular episode. So that's when I think about Dave Wallace. When I think of signifiers gone wild, I think of Dave Foster Wallace. Yeah. And there's also a sense, too, that like Dave Foster Wallace is one of those guys who has a vocalic register that's way bigger than anyone, right? Uh, or, excuse me, way higher, I suppose. He's got a vocabulary that's way bigger than anyone. And... um 
you know, everyone's had a kind of, they've had conversations. Everyone has had conversations with people who use big words and expect you to understand them. I've been accused of this at times. Um, and there's a kind of, you know, like there's a kind of upwelling of frustration because it's like, you don't actually care about communicating, right? You're just saying things. And David Foster Wallace wouldn't so much say like, ah, yes, but there's such a delight to the sonic quality of the word or to calling a thing by its proper name with all of its rich ambivalence or polyvalence, yada, yada. He's like, in a certain sense, it's like kind of cool. <laughs> and once you so got to that David point, Foster Wallace, so just to be clear about that. Okay. So this is yeah, like yeah. postmodern crash. We should probably do like a second episode on like what's good about postmodernism and like not everything, but a lot so that, but we'll just skip that for now. No, no, no. Yeah. But, but like I'm on board. It is kind of cool in a certain sense. Like, I mean, when reading his things, I've, I'm, I'm rarely tempted to look up a word because mm. if you've gone by me on a word, it's like, you deserve it. You know, you deserve mm. my incomprehension. But with Foster Wallace, it's like, dude, the word smithery is to such a bewildering extent that I, I'm bringing my dictionary because I, I owe that to you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's fascinating. Like it, 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 it achieves in a certain sense what it, what it seeks to do, but it, what it seeks to do is just, it's just different. It just operates on a different level. Yeah. Uh, Pinchon. So we yeah, read, let's... so the two of us, I'll let Greg, I'll get Father Gregory speak most about this one, but so we decided, we, we read books together and we decided to read uh, Gravity's Rainbow because we wanted to read a good book. And so we read uh, Thomas Pinchon's Gravity Rain Gravity's Rainbow. And uh, that's a book and a half, ladies and gentlemen. That is a okay. book and a half. Um, let's just say that the main character is wearing a rocket suit with a cape <laughs> for a good amount of that book um, huh? and other costumes. And it's entirely <laughs> unclear why and let's just say that there's also like trained octopuses is that right there's also the, the, yep. that get like special crabs or something so anyway that book is an explosion of like you can't find a narrative in that there's no real narrative even though you know ahead of time it's supposed to have a narrative arc and you kind of think you know what the narrative arc is nah that's regional ontology's gone mad yeah so i think the thing about that which we found distressing is that it's transgressive in a more violent way so to be clear at the outset, not a book that I would recommend. And it's not even the kind of thing where it's like, uh, you know, I'm glad I read it, but I don't know if it's worth it for other people. I'm, I'm basically sure that it's not worth it for anyone. <laughs> at a certain some, point, some I just downloaded the audio come on this thing and hate us. Yeah, exactly. Well, so be it. Um, but, you know, he, he gives you some semblance of narrative arc insofar as he's looking for this particular type of rocket, right? Because he's become obsessed with it. Um, but the he, he makes you pass. Yeah, the Schwarzgeret. He makes you pass through a bunch of narrative settings in the sense that, like, at first you think that it's going to terminate within the context of the war, and then you think that it's going to terminate shortly thereafter, and then you come to realize that, like, none of these settings matter, none of these characters matter, none mm. of these perceived conflicts matter, and it's just it's a pilgrimage towards a thing in a certain sense. There is a kind of holy site at which one arrives, but that doesn't matter either. Mm. None of it matters. None yeah. of it matters. So it's like post-formal, post-structural, post-narratile, post-everything. And in a certain sense, you come to the end, you realize that the author has just been messing with you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something else. Yeah, it's, it's really some, it, it requires skill. It's like getting a zero on a, on a, uh, on a multiple-choice exam. It requires extreme skill to be able to pull that off because you, you have yeah. to, you have to know the right answers in a way. And in some ways right. I want to say gravity's rainbow is a great achievement of a zero on a hundred test. I mean, it's like great job. Just fantastic. No. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Whereas I think, so maybe to bring it back around to Wallace as we round out the scoring, I think that what's what's most dispiriting about Gravity's Rainbow is that, like you said, you know, it's a it's a it's a well accomplished zero, but um, it's he's showing off all along the way. So he's showing you all of his literary acumen insofar as he has mastered the discipline as it has come to be practiced, you know, in the in the twentieth century in his case. So he shows you a kind of um, savant post formalism. He shows you a kind of savant post narratival decay, uh, and all as a way by which to say what that things don't matter, but like you have to try in order to avoid meaning, right? You have to, you have to, like you said, wend your way around the very evident signs thereof. And that's not to be like overly credulous and like, oh yeah, everything is just fraught with meaning in a Chestertonian way that you just mm-hmm. need to attend to because you would punch me where I'd say that. But I suppose that's why we're in different rooms. Um, but yes, there, there's a sense in which he's just He's purposefully wasting your time. Whereas I think the thing that's different about Wallace is he actually thinks that there is some meaning, but that that meaning is difficult to access. And in order to access that meaning, you need to do the work, and the work entails suffering the postmodern condition. So he's more like, all right, we exist in time and space. Part of existing in time and space is being a product of this kind of ambient postmodern culture. So I'm going to take you through it, but not so much because I necessarily sympathize with it, though, you know, I'm like every other prideful man under the sun. I do want to show you a little bit that I'm good. Um, but also because, you know, there's a, there's a new sincerity to be had, right? There's a kind of naivete, a second naivete on the other side of all of this despair, which uh, gives you a firm grasp of your humanity. And insofar as you've suffered all of this you know, post, post, post along the way, you'll, you'll have a firmer sense of what is in fact yours. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's Chestertonianism coming back by way of another direction well, for it's, me. It's but Hegel for know. sure. But, uh, that's right. Yeah. Second naivete. I mean, you're going to go through the critical period after the first naivete because Foster Wallace has this Hegelian insight that cliches are true, you know, but just turns, you have to go out through, you have to go through post-modernity and stand on the, on a hill wearing a, like a transvestite dress or something with a guy in a wheelchair and his Quebec or something to realize that turns out, you know, god exists like that's just infinite jazz for you yeah yeah les ss and the photo roulant mm-hmm. yeah that's strange man such weird but hey i'm glad i read that for sure so all right with that we've got vespers in five minutes um nope this is live just kidding no yeah we have vespers in five minutes so we're gonna wrap things up but while wrapping things up i have an announcement to make on behalf of the whole squad which is that uh we're gonna be partnering with creatio pilgrimage company uh, the website of which you can find at creatio.org, uh, to go on pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. <laughs> and that's going to be next spring, summer, spring, summer, May 23rd through June 26th. I can't think, I can't, I can't believe that those dates are right. I think Father Jacob Bertrand may, yeah, I think it's May 23rd through June 6th. If it were to the 26th, I certainly couldn't go. Because it's June 6th, I can go, which is great. Um, so Father Jacob Bertrand and I will be chaplaining a trip and I think that there are spots for maybe 12 people on it uh, with flights in and out of Madrid and then beginning the Camino at Astorga, Spain, ending in Santiago de Compostela, you guessed it, um, and, and tracing a route of 161 miles, uh, which is about 13 miles a day. I trust the math. So applications are open today, July 1st, uh, and they'll be accepted on September 1st. So there'll be like a kind of period during which you can apply. And all the details... Uh, specifically true things, which will correct the false things that I've said, are available on the God's Planning website. So check that out. 
second thing is we have our next episode of live splaining if you're listening to this on the day that it drops that will be tomorrow july 2nd at 4 p.m eastern standard time that'll be father jacob Bertrand and myself and we're going to be talking about the eucharist okay and what way is the eucharist the source of health uh or the eucharist and spiritual health more broadly uh that'll be like for the first 10 minutes and then we'll answer your questions insofar as you have them if you don't have them then we will try to compose a postmodern novel in the span that we have, which will involve all kinds of wild metanarratival backflips. Um, other than that, oh my gosh, the puppets are back. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, you, you my friends, have really just, you've you got a treat on your hands. So thanks so much for listening, for liking, for sharing the podcast and leaving reviews. Uh, thanks so much for those who support us through Patreon. We're very grateful, and that goes towards making this thing good. Uh, left to our own devices, it would be like a bunch of people shouting in an echoey room. With Which is what the first, like, 40 episodes were. And the puppets, yeah. You can't get the puppets out. Um, so, yeah. There may be other announcements, but I've forgotten them. So I'll content ourselves. We will content ourselves with that. And thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time on God's Plane. <laughs> thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.